When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is returning guest for the second time, Michael Whitkoff. He is an author of several books, um, notably about Freemasonry. He's also a Jewish-born convert to Greek Orthodoxy. And in this conversation, we talk, well, we try to talk about dogma, but because dogma doesn't make any sense to me, we end up talking about religious experience and I divulge more than I have about my own spiritual development and my own spiritual beliefs, which are not meant to be put out there as some sort of dictate or what I believe other people should think. It's not how I think about that kind of thing. But here you go. What is it that I believe or how did I come about believing what I do believe is examined in this conversation. We talk about how experience and belief get along or don't get along and how we can suss out the truth of that which is beyond the empirical mindset. Michael's a great fellow. Uh, check out his channel. It's down in the description below as well as is his Twitter slash X. Don't really like calling it X, but without further ado, here is Michael Whitkoff. Long time no see, kind of, but not really. Kind of, yeah. October, <laughs> August. It's October now. It was August when we first spoke. Can you remember what? that far? No, no. Is your I life mean, so devoid of content that <laughs> you can remember the date of our last conversation? No, no. How was Barbie? I've seen it twice now. Oh, twice. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I still... I still really enjoy the, it. The first one, on our, well, my wife first one ironically. Okay, my yeah. wife wanted to see it, but I went and saw it with a friend first, and then when it came out on streaming, I watched it with her. Oh, it's um, on streaming already, huh? Yeah. There's a scene where the Kens fight on a beach, and it turns into a dance and music video. It's an amazing scene. You know, you can say what you want about wokeness in the movie or the director's agenda, but that is a, 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 an epic scene. Um that's just fun to watch. So what can I, I say? I love that song. I sing it whenever I get a chance in my car. I'm just Ken. I'm just Ben. Actually, I have. Oh. I have a, <laughs> there you go. Uh, my my girlfriend's uh, cousin made me. A, I'm a Benuff uh, sweater. Hey. I should probably wear it for the stream. Is it like the rainbow colored sweater, like the real Ken sweater? We could. Yeah, it's just a baby blue one with the oh, pink gotcha. Barbie B. Uh, uh, I'll nice. wear it. On, That's a nice gift. Yeah. It's yeah. So, you wanted to talk about dogma, maybe some other things. Mm. Dogma, is, is that a good word or a bad word for you? I think it's a good word. Okay. I like it. Not not the Ben Affleck movie necessarily, but dogma in terms of what it represents. Where, uh, it's odd that you would call that a Ben Affleck, not a Kevin Smith movie. That's interesting. I, I've lost interest in Kevin Smith. I mean, I, try, I don't watch many movies and shows anymore anyway, but I forgot yeah. what it was, but he said or did something really egregious a couple of years ago, and I just totally lost interest in his work. It might have been COVID-related, but I don't want to misquote the thing. 
Um, hmm. I think of it as a Ben Affleck movie, maybe an Alanis Morissette movie. <laughs> so I, she is God. Year, years ago, I, I mentioned something in a YouTube video about how Alanis Morissette had died, and I got corrected by all these people in the comments. So I had to publicly repent and apologize to Alanis Morissette, who I'm sure watches all of my videos, for, for mistakenly Wait. accusing her of death. Why do you think she died? I don't know. <laughs> like don't of what? Know. And what did you suppose she died from? I don't think I even put a cause on it. I think I just <laughs> assumed she had died for some reason. And the forgetting that I had seen her in Curb Your Enthusiasm a few years ago, she was in an episode of that, very, very much alive. There was a whole episode where she plays at their house at the end. Um, I don't watch that show anymore because it's too too degrading, too vulgar. Mm. Mm. But it was funny back when I was watching mm. that stuff. But yeah, dogma I think of as a good word because I think it's an important aspect of faith and our healing. Mm. And I'm sure you and I will have more disagreements in this video than the last one, probably. But I'm not going to turn it into a debate. I'm going to try to be on my best behavior. And well, no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, yeah. If you want to start flinging crap around your room in disgust at my... All I have here is instruments, really. So oh, yeah, I'm don't do I that. I don't want to fling any of that. Pete Townsend, yeah. but... Um... I haven't used that microphone in probably a year, year and a half. But it was a nice gift. For your it's singing? An, yeah. It's, uh, is it an Aston? Is that what it's called? It's some really nice microphone I got. Because I was working um, with my friend Nick Leonard. We have a band called Akathist. But we only finished two songs. I, they're both up on my YouTube channel. But I used that microphone for both of them. And I, there was a while where I was working on my own albums and stuff, more of like a classic rock, orthodox album. I even had to cut the album cover made. I had I downloaded all this drum software to make all these songs. But life happened, and it just never ended up materializing. But I still play at least one of the guitars. I haven't played the electric ones in a while. I haven't touched my Epiphone Les Paul in a really long time. It'd be great to finish out the show with a track of yours if if it's not copyrighted. <laughs> you you have my permission. Well, you can Some play Bones, play Bones of the Living Dead at the end of the show. It's on my YouTube channel. Bones it's more of like a doom metal song. The other one is like a piano song. It's a, a sentimental kind of soft song. But Bones okay. of the Living Dead is is heavier. Okay, is that is that what you want to close out with? Yeah. The heavy. Okay. Right. Yeah. Cool. I mean, people will but maybe enjoy that. Back back to like even the premise of having a debate about dogma. Mm. I don't even know if that's possible because we're not talking about something that has come to you by the mind, unless you you're of the opinion that God is accessed through the process of rational debate. I don't think that that's possible. I don't think that God um, is communed with in that way. But that I think that human beings. Position. Okay, so human beings can discuss the spirit life, but I don't think God can be accessed through discussion with other human beings. Is that that's not your position? But what do you what do you think about that? Like even having a debate about dogma just seems like to miss the point. I think I agree with you that it misses the point. However, I do think it's important to have correct dogma, but I don't think that discussing it necessarily just debating the points of it necessarily gives you the full picture of the context of what dogma is or why it matters and why it's important. But of course, we have thousands of years of debate over dogma 
you know, groups have split off of our church over dogmatic differences. Um, big, big groups have left. I mean, Roman Catholic, for example, left over a number of dogmatic issues. Um, so we can debate those in the finer points of history, but there's a context for dogma and a meaning to dogma okay. that I don't think is necessarily present if we're just debating on that level, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. But I well, fundamentally I would like agree to... with you that dogma cannot be understood purely through dialectical reasoning and the rational mind. Okay. All right. So with that said, where that that's a really good beginning to frame like what dogma is and then what correct dogma is. So I understand what you're, how you use dogma, what, what is the use of dogma in your religious life? Um, and then your relationship to God and to dogma and where they intersect or how they hmm. relate to one another. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So for us, the, the actual dogmatic teachings of the Orthodox church is actually not a very big number of things. You could probably fit it on one page, single spaced. I like that. However, we have at least 800 years of, well, I guess 400 years of ecumenical councils or a thousand years, depending on who you ask, hammering out the details of all this stuff. Um, and typically, I think there's a misconception that the ecumenical councils of the church uh, created dogma or that it was invented at the councils. Um, something a lot of lower church Protestants will say is that Constantine invented the Trinity at the um, Council of Nicaea, the first Council of Nicaea. In reality, these councils were called to define dogma in response to specific heresies. So when a certain heresy like Arianism for that first council took over huge amounts of the church, the idea that Christ was not fully God, that he was just the highest created being, or as Arius himself put it, that there was a time when the sun was not. The council had to be called to refute that so everyone would understand, no, this is what the apostles taught, this is what Christ taught, this is what the church has always taught, and this new thing being brought in is an error. So it's not that our dogmas are invented at councils, it's that they are sometimes defined uh, more specifically than they had been before, or words will be, in some cases, invented specifically to help understand and communicate the dogmas, like homoousios, that the Father and Son are of one essence, and the Spirit as well, as was dogmatized at a later council. But these are these are just the apostolic teachings being defined and clarified in public. It does not mean they're being invented at the councils, which I think is a, a mistake that some people make. So they already exist? Yes. And where are they derived from, then? From God's faith. revelation to the saints and to the bishops in synod or council. Uh, I'm sorry, what's synod or council? Synod, S-Y-N-O-D, which is yeah, what we synod, call okay. a council. Yeah, it's okay. just kind of another name for council. And those dudes are basing their decisions on the text of the Bible? Not necessarily. So what they're basing their decisions on is what God has revealed to the saints. And when the bishops get together and pray about it, the Holy Spirit guides them to a decision. So, for example, we see this in Acts 15 in the Bible, the Council of Jerusalem, where Peter and Paul are having a debate about Judaizing. And um, St. James presides over this council and the bishops, the apostles, pray over it. And they, the way they describe how they came to a decision is they say in Acts 15, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So they pray together and the Holy Spirit then speaks through them. That is the prototype for how all of our other councils have gone. Now, if, 
it, there's nothing in the dogmas that is against the Bible. And in fact, in these councils, you will often see verses uh, cited on both sides of the of the argument by the heretics yeah. as well as by the orthodox. But it's not that the dogma is being derived only from the scripture. It's being derived from the revelation of God to the saints, part of which is written in scripture. But we don't see scripture as the totality of faith. It is infallible. It is inerrant. We can't do anything or say anything that goes against it. But it itself, we don't believe that Christianity is based on a book. We believe it's based on the teaching of Christ to the apostles and the church they founded, which later canonized and produced this book of letters and gospels that we call the New Testament. Oh, but the church was okay. there before the New Testament. So it can't doesn't make sense for the church to be based on a book that hadn't been written yet. Huh. Okay. All right. What is like one of the more recent... Um... I don't know if the word decision is the right, but the bishops coming together and praying over an issue. What's more, like one of the recent, like present day issues that have been bridged and like, like tinkered with, or like you see the, the living process of development over time in the dogmas of the church. So the last council that would be considered by some to be ecumenical was in the 15th century. That's as recent as we're going to get. Oh, really? Um, yes. What happened? It was a series of councils. They're called the Palamite councils. So St. Gregory Palamas was a hesychast, which is someone that spends his life in stillness and prayer and has experiences of God through that stillness, uh, experiences of seeing the uncreated light of God, gifts of the Holy Spirit, things of that nature. His opponent, uh, was it Balaam or Barlam? I think it was Balaam of Calabria, this Italian monk, was making the argument that this was all nonsense. These guys were just sitting around staring at their belly buttons all day. There was no uncreated light. God could only be understood through dialectical reasoning and logic and the rational mind. There's so no they, uncreated light. I'm sorry, that, that just jumped out at me. Yeah, that's that getting into the deep, the deeper end. Uh, okay. there, there's a creative light, like what you see in my room right now, in your room right now. That's right here. And there is an uncreated light of God, which is what the apostles saw at Christ's transfiguration on Mount Tabor, which is not of the same nature or quality as created light. So St. Gregory, in a you know 1,400-year-old tradition by then, believed that saints could experience this uncreated light, just like Peter, Paul, and James did at the transfiguration. And Balaam, I have to Google this because I don't remember if it's Balaam or Barlam, and I'm going to sound really stupid if I get it wrong. Give me like two seconds. Yeah, that's fine. Because I was just reading about a Barlam this morning, and now I have to... It was Barlam. It was Barlam. Barlam of Calabria. So there was a series of councils over a period of years uh, where the church was holding these two ideas in tension and seeing, okay, what is what is the real apostolic teaching? What have the saints said? And Barlam lost the debate and ended up going off and becoming a Roman Catholic. Now, those Palamite councils are considered the ninth ecumenical council some people think there were only seven other people will say there are nine but that was the 15th century was over this quiet still mystical experience of god versus the approach of logic and dialectical reasoning hmm. why hadn't there been anything since then the no need or i would say as far as theology goes we pretty much have it all hammered out i mean there's there's no there aren't a whole lot of new questions of theology I mean, Mormonism is its own, I have to be trying to be nice. 
its own bizarre um, complex of Build-A-Bear heresies that in some ways are new, which is actually impressive that Joseph Smith came up with new heresies. That's very hard <laughs> to do after after 1,800 years of theological debate. But he pulled it off. He pulled it off. Um, but And even some of those, some of his heresies had been anathematized previously, like the belief in what they call pre-mortality or the pre-existence of souls, this uh, Greek pagan idea that souls are hanging out in heaven before they take on a body uh, where for us of course christ existed before he had a body but us regular people did not we are created in a moment in time uh, we get our body and soul at the same time so besides that i don't think there's a whole lot of theology that's left unexplained um, there are pastoral and disciplinary issues that i think a council would be helpful to call to deal with uh, but in terms of theological dogma for the orthodox church it's pretty much all done and in fact for anyone watching or listening who's curious, this book here, Orthodox Dogmatic Theology by Father Michael Pomazansky, translated by Father Seraphim Rose, Saint Seraphim mm -hmm. Rose, really. This is, I would consider the authoritative, I mean, short, relatively short, what is it, 400 something pages, almost 400 pages. This goes through pretty much everything. And it's a really excellent resource, um, kind of an encyclopedic resource of our dogmas our theology, the history of it, the sacraments, what is a human being, who is God, what is mm -hmm. evil, what is sin, what is salvation, what is creation. Um, really, it's my favorite theological textbook, I would say. And many saints have written their own orthodox dogmatic theology books, um, but St. Seraphim Rose, a very recent American saint, um, not canonized yet in America, but he has been canonized locally in a different country and probably will be canonized here eventually. Um, mm. He gave this his full stamp of approval, okay, which is good enough for me. If it's good enough for Saint Seraphim, it's good enough. <laughs> so, before we get into what is a saint, um, what's the history of Orthodox um, treatment of heresies and heretics? It, the uh, popular imagination would project the Western tradition mm -hmm. of. Probably some rather intense um, disciplinary proceedings up to including burning at the stake. And then if you look at Islam too, Islam's got a pretty harsh treatment of the, uh, the heretic. What is, how does, how did that, your faith change over time how dealing with heretics works? And did it become heretical to deal with them in a certain way? Is it okay to kill a man based on like no. a thought in his head? No, never. Okay. Uh, so the heretics, all of the worst heretics were Orthodox Christians, or at least members of the church. Uh, and then when they are declared heretics, they are anathematized and excommunicated. Um, nobody, to my knowledge, has been physically harmed because they were a heretic. And if that does, if that has happened, it would have been considered an error that would have been not approved by the church at the time. I mean, you always have someone going off and doing something crazy in the name of in the name of the church or the name of God or something. That doesn't mean that that person's errant actions is actually representative of church teaching. Um, but for us, the dogmas are, are the boundaries. You know, you. So this is another book I'm going to recommend to everybody. The Illness and Cure of the Soul in the Orthodox Tradition by Metropolitan Hierotheos Vlachos. Hmm. And this book is about how orthodoxy is a, for lack of a better phrase, therapeutic modality, is how many people of us might think of it, how it's a hospital for the sick. 
And okay. he points out in here that dogmatic differences in religious or philosophical understandings and paradigms necessarily lead to differences in the path of treatment or the path of healing. So this is not, I don't think he uses this example in here, but for example, let's say that you have early stages of liver failure, right? Yeah. And you go to a doctor whose medical school didn't know what the liver was, and they only taught him how to amputate fingers and toes. So you go there, you, you say, oh, I have pain in this area of my body. He goes, well, I'm going to go ahead and amputate a couple fingers and toes, and hopefully that'll help. Because if the doctor or if the school doesn't know what a liver is, they're not going to be able to cure it. Yeah. So that would be a dogmatic difference, a medical school that has a holistic view versus one that just likes to chop off fingers and toes. Well, the same is true for, for religion. If you don't have a religion that understands who God is, who we are, what a human being is, what the parts of a human being are, what the powers of the soul are, then how can you possibly be healed in those aspects by a paradigm that doesn't understand them in the first place? Hmm. Does that make sense? It does, um, but it also assumes that that the spiritual realities can be communicated through teachings and language. And what are the boundaries of dogma and being able to understand, comprehend, and then convey the realities of the spirit, the inner life? But that is an excellent question. So in orthodoxy, there exists a concept called cataphatic versus apophatic theology. That's like a brewing term. Cataphatic <laughs> is affirmative statements we can make about God, things that have been revealed to us. So we can say there is one God. We can mm. say God is good. We can say God is love. Yeah. God exists as a trinity of persons. We can say those things. But there's a boundary there beyond which we have to get into the apophatic or negative or silent approach to God, beyond which there's nothing in the human mind or or human language that can conceive of what's going on and has to be experienced directly in an ineffable mystical way by the saints. So for example, we can say cataphatically, there is one God who exists in the Trinity of persons. This has been revealed to us. What does that mean exactly? In what manner does one God exist in three persons? What are the inner workings of the Trinity? That's not something that we're going to be able to put words to. And our saints have, have, tried and put the best words they could to it, but they've all acknowledged there's a level beyond which all we can do is use analogies, and even those are not actually sufficient, but they can be helpful towards moving our mind in the right direction. Hmm. So there is definitely moving. a limit. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt so, you there. No, moving your mind in the right direction. I, I appreciate that because it is... So my own, I don't, I can't say that I have a theology. I just have a collection of experiences that align with what other people have told me. And one thing that I'm pretty sure of is that God, well, there is no God, but God, but the, but there is a direction like God's God is, ah, yeah. See, you can't even, uh, you can't really uh, explain it, but I can be closer or further away from God. Let's put it that way. Like God isn't in, in a certain degree. I can't point where God is, but I, I can, I, my relationship to God, like I'm in a relation to God or I'm in a relation, a position toward God, either in, in orientation, in, mm -hmm. in the way that I am facing God in any given moment or right. throughout the course of my life. Um, so that you would say that there are certain 
dogmas, principles to get one on the right path to move one closer toward that. It's like, these aren't necessarily, it's not necessarily a road or a path or a recipe for God-likeness so much as it's the orientation that precedes or makes possible a closer, a closerness to Almighty God, the one Almighty God. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that was a good way of articulating it. Yeah. Um, there, it's not it's not a formula, you know, but we do have to have a correct understanding of God and man in order for us to be healed and become God-like or restore that likeness of God in us mm-hmm. that we teach was lost at the fall. So we teach that at the fall, the image of God was maintained in everybody, but that likeness to God, that likeness of God was stained or darkened. And so our life in the Orthodox Church, the purpose of that is to restore that likeness of God. So we, in order to do that, we have to know whose likeness it is that we are attempting to restore. You know, we have to, and, and I believe that God meets us where we are. I do believe that just through my own experience and many other experiences, you know, I don't think that you need to have, like, let's say you've never heard of Orthodox Christianity, right? Like I had in seven years ago. That doesn't mean that God was not working in my life to draw me closer to him, right? And so I I went through a bunch of experiences that I had to have first in order to just prepare my heart for the truth of orthodoxy. I don't think I could have gone from pickup artist, Freemason, you know, devil worshiper in some sense, straight to orthodoxy. There There was a lot that had to be changed in my heart and mind first. And so looking back, obviously God was was there with me, showing me the one thing at a time, picking up the Bible, starting to read Proverbs and trying to reorient my life towards that. But at a certain point, you know, you, there there does there does come that point where you really have to understand who Christ is in order to understand that you're made in his image and then walk the path that he laid out mm-hmm. in order to get back to him, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, what, what I'm not saying is that God is completely absent from the lives of the non-Orthodox or if you have wrong dogma. That's not our belief at all. We believe everyone is in a relationship with God because you would not exist if you weren't. You're created in his image. You can't get away from God even if you really want to. Yeah. You know, the people that say they really want to, like let's look at Nietzsche, for example, right? I think Nietzsche believed in God a lot more than some Christians do. Why would you spend your whole life raging against someone you don't believe in? It doesn't even make sense. So even in his efforts to pretend he didn't believe in God, right, he was still in that relationship of opposition, but that's still a relationship. Hmm. So we don't yeah, believe God part... is absent from other people. God is not absent from anybody. But we can be, like you were saying, closer to or farther from him based on our approach and our orientation. Yeah, yeah. Why Proverbs? Well, for me, that was really important when I started going to Protestant church. I didn't know anything about okay. the scriptures or, or anything like that. And that was something that someone there told me I should start reading if I want to start learning, you know, what path to stop walking down, what path to start walking down. Just oh, okay. So it was like a just there. very basic uh, orientation. Yeah. Like here's a compass because you're mm-hmm. all discombobulated, but there is a, there is a map, there is up, down, left, and right. Yeah. Um, and and here this this is a good way of of interacting with that and getting a, getting your bearings. Yeah, like I needed the preschool of Christianity, and some mm-hmm. ways still do, but especially back then when all all I knew was that I suddenly believed that Jesus was real and I wanted to follow him, but I have no idea what that means or how to do it. 
So I needed the, like, like St. Paul says, right? Milk for babes, meat for strong men. Yeah. I was, um, I was, I think I told, told you, I might've told you this, but I know I've spoken to it on my channel just from my own position in this conversation. I was at an, I was dreaming. I was at an event. Uh, it was a spiritual event. It was some sort of spiritual Congress. And my dad was there and my dad hand, handed me a Bible and he's like, you need to go and read this. And I was really, um, I was just really like, I, I was really frustrated. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But anyways, and I had this and it was bothering me. So I sat down in the corner, just kind of off to the side from other people. And I was flipping through the Bible and this is in my dream. And I came to the Psalms and, and I saw that the Psalms were, it's just a chapter book of music and that I could add to the Psalms too. Like, so it was like this orientation towards the Bible where I get to, pray or play with praying toward God or praying with worship. So it was like it, there's something about that phase of the, of the, whatever it is that the scriptures are that included me in it. Like I started to be able to enter into the Bible and react with the Bible, but it was very much a interactive kind of thing. Like I was making Psalms too. Like I was playing, I was mm -hmm. playing in there and that's when I, I, the truth or the, that's when like, I felt like the Bible, like, okay, like I can, I have a good relationship to the Bible. Cause it's not just this heavy thing that has all these commandments in it. It's this, it's this dialogue, like I'm in dialogue with it in, in one of several ways. Um, so that's just from my point of view, like, like how, like when you brought Proverbs, like, like the Psalms are my entry point back into a good relationship with that book. Psalms are amazing. There's, yeah. there's so much depth to them. Um, actually some of the deepest teachings of Christianity, I think are in the Psalms, but really you have to understand what it is that's being, that they're talking about. Yeah. As uh, as one of Jewish descent or heritage, mm. you must have like kind of a. I'm wondering how do I phrase this? Like, what are your what's your feelings about that? Uh, having this ancient text that's kind of tied to your genetic code in a way, and then also like this other thing that's some. I guess some Jewish people would argue that Christianity is kind of like built on top of that, you know, so, but you're coming at it from like the genetic heritage part of it is entwined with this thing that then grows out of it. Like, do you have thoughts on that or meditations that you've experienced? Well, Christianity is true regardless of your genetics. doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, black, white, purple polka dot, whatever. Yeah. Um, so growing up Jewish, I was in what's called reform Judaism, which is kind of like the watered down more, progressive, you could say, branch in America. There's Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox Judaism. Yeah. So it's liturgical worship, which is, you know, what, I mean, Orthodox Christianity, the Church of the Apostles, grew out of Second Temple Judaism. So they didn't throw away the forms of worship, um, like a lot of evangelical, non-denominational Protestants believe. I don't know why they believe that. The Bible certainly doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, in Acts, I want to say it's 3-1, or 9-1, either 3-1 or 9-1. Oh, my prayer rope just went blind. Um, Peter and, I think it's Peter and John, go to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, is what the Bible says. So this idea that the apostles and Christ somehow did away with structured worship um, is not present in the Bible. It's not 
present in the teachings of the apostles or any of their students. In fact, if you read the students of the apostles, the immediate students, St. Ignatius of Antioch, St. Polycarp of Smyrna, a generation later, St. Justin Martyr, they're all describing, you know, ancient worship. Well, maybe not St. Polycarp, I don't know if he wrote about it in particular, but St. Ignatius is talking about the Eucharist, the centrality of the Eucharist. St. Justin Martyr, in around the year 150, gives us the earliest written description that we have of a Christian service. It's not a, it's not a fog machine and a rock band. It's a liturgical service. There are structured parts. We do the same order every time. It's, again, Eucharistic focus. Um, so becoming an Orthodox Christian, I feel in some ways closer to my roots, like the synagogue that I grew up in, because, for example, now the, the priests and the deacons will process around the church with the holy gifts, the bread and, and the wine, uh, whereas in Judaism, the rabbi processes around with the Torah. So it looks very similar. Uh, yeah. as one would expect it to, but it's fulfilled now, and it has all kinds of grace and spiritual content that Judaism simply does not have. So mm. genetics aside, I mean, Judaism is not a salvific religion. It cannot save you. It cannot heal your soul. Um, it might give you some, depending on who you ask, guidelines to behave better, uh, but it can't actually heal you. Now, Dennis Prager did a really awful video um, oh, no. a few months ago where he was talking just a few about, months ago. I don't know. I, don't I think, think it was a few months ago where he was saying Judaism is a behaviorist religion. So he was just, you know, from his perspective, I think gloating or bragging about how that's a good thing. But from our perspective, that's not a good thing at all because the Pharisees in Christ's time were all very well behaved, right? They were very educated. They were scholars. Their actions were not sinful, but inside they were corrupt. They were blackened on the inside. And Christ talks about this. He calls them whitewashed tombs, right? It looks nice on the outside, but inside it's dead and decaying. Well, then Prager comes along and, and says things like, well, it's okay to use pornography if it stops you from committing adultery because it's like a lesser sin. Well, he doesn't say anything about actually overcoming that lust internally, having the grace of God remove that lustful instinct mm. from your heart or transfigure your desire for union, which is what lust is. It's fundamentally a power from God. You want to have union with God and with your fellow man that is perverted into this carnal sexual desire for union with, you know, random strangers, if that's the, the lifestyle that you're living. So his video really... I think I, that's the best example I've seen of why Judaism can't save you. God is simply not there. That is not a religion from God that is just acting on you from the outside that wants you to behave better, but internally has no effect on you. That doesn't actually heal or save you in any way. Hmm. So looking back, that's very much my experience. And of course, there are plenty of Jews that would not have any problem with the kind of bad behavior that in the Old Testament God does not like. Uh, because it's kind of everyone's off doing their own thing. And there's what's called Judaism in the modern world is not even the Judaism of the ancient world. It's completely different. It's rabbinic or Pharisaic Judaism. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. temple temple Judaism, which ended in the year 70 AD. I mean, really ended when Christ came, but ended eternally for all to see in 70 when the temple was sacked. And then they tried to rebuild it a couple hundred years later, and it blew up and killed all the workers. So God really put what? his stamp on that. Wait, yeah, under, there was an emperor named Julian the Apostate who was an, born an Orthodox Christian, became a pagan, and he made this deal with the Jews whereby he was going to help them rebuild the temple. And then there was a big explosion of, of fireballs that came out and just killed all the people working on it. 
So I think that's God's like, way of they saying just, somebody invented dynamite, or was there like a gas leak or something? Like, how does explosions happen in, in that? That is of... that is what some Jews have said is that oh, it was just a gas problem. You know, <laughs> um, I think it was. I think they had a God problem, not a gas problem, because hmm. we are the we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, and of course, Orthodox Church uses temples as well. Yeah. So I. I you've you've mentioned the word healing quite a bit i think that that can be uh, a helpful access to the content of let's just say dogma because just as you know if if you if god comes and tells you you know the 10 commandments or you have the torah and, and it's like this map for behavior and if there's no content there then there's no content there maybe you'll have a good life but if you if god then comes and reveals all this dogma to you and you have all these right beliefs on top of it that's just still a skeletal structure mm-hmm. and it, in and of itself there's no content there maybe maybe there is some sort of content there absent a human being in relationship in living relationship to god i don't know maybe Maybe the dogma supersedes somehow. I don't know if you think that or if that's heretical to think that the dogma pre-exists and post-exists. A human's using dogma to relate to God. So you are correct. Simply knowing the correct dogmas does not do anything for your soul. Yeah. And there's a very unfortunate trend on the Orthodox Internet. And I'm not going to name names because I'm trying to be on my best behavior where there are people that will um, have the correct dogma and wield it as a weapon against others to insult them for not being as correct as they are. Um, But by the behavior of those people, it's very obvious they don't don't get it. They're they're not receiving the healing that it's supposed to lead to. And there's a reason for that. So the way that trend comes off is, let's say you find the best hospital, right? The true hospital. And you're standing outside the hospital, pointing at it, telling everyone, look, this is the real hospital. Yours is fake. Yours is stupid. You're you're this, you're that, calling you names. Don't you know this is the real hospital? Okay, but you have to actually go inside at some point, and you have to actually be healed. It's not enough to just know where the hospital is. It, it needs to actually regenerate you. And so in this book, again, Illness and Cure of the Soul in the Orthodox Tradition, which I think is a... It's not a long book, but it's very, very impactful. It, it shows you the purpose of why are we doing all this in the first place? What is the purpose of orthodoxy, right? Yeah. So for him, the dog, for Metropolitan Hierotheos, the correct dogma is only the first of four steps that you need to actually be healed. Okay. Uh, you have to have that correct for the reasons I was saying earlier. And then I'm trying to find the page here, but if I can't find it, I, I think I know more or less the, uh, the dynamic. So... You have to have the correct dogma is the first thing. The second thing you have to have, and I think this is the part that's very hard for people, is an awareness that you're sick. You have to have that contrition, that desire for repentance that comes from the gift of God showing you how sick and selfish and ungrateful and corroded you are internally. Mm. And this, again, is a gift from God because you can't. Uh, You're not just going to figure this out on your own, but there's something wrong with your lifestyle if you're leaving a sinful lifestyle. You might not be happy. You're probably going to be numbing yourself with drugs or alcohol or something because part of you knows you shouldn't be doing that. But to actually experience directly what it means for you to be in sin or a sinner is something God reveals to us. So you have to have, according to Metropolitan Hierotheos, the correct dogma, the awareness that you're a sinner. The third part is that you need to have a spiritual father who himself has been healed that can guide you. So there's this other idea that sitting in your room reading books about orthodoxy 
it's important in some ways. I'm not discounting it because that's what I do with most of my free time, but it's not enough. You are not going to learn through a book, the direct face-to-face contact with a healed spiritual father who mm-hmm. understands your sickness because he, he, he gets it. He's a doctor. Christ is the ultimate physician with a capital P and a good priest or spiritual father or confessor derives their ability to be a good spiritual doctor from Christ. But by being healed themselves, they understand errant thought patterns, errant behavior patterns, how these things are connected. They can see in you what you can't see in yourself and give you a prescription. You have to have a doctor that can give you the prescription. And then the fourth step is asceticism, which is the daily Mm. moment to moment death to our own wills, our own desires, our own egos in service to other people in obedience to a spiritual father or to an abbot at a monastery or in service to our spouse, you know, saying, well, I want to do something, but this other person needs something. I'm going to die to what I want to be of service to them like Christ did for us. Right. Those are the four steps that actually heal you. So it's it's absolutely not just having the correct dogma. And in some ways, that can actually be profoundly dangerous and make you worse. If you have all the correct dogmas and you've sat in your room filling your mind with theology, but you're not living a spiritual life, you're not in real obedience to a spiritual father, you're not trying to die to yourself, you're not trying to live out the gospel commandments, that's just going to make you full of pride and vanity for how great you are and actually get you much farther from God, despite intellectually having an understanding that should be getting you closer. Mm-hmm. Does all that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It um, in my in my spiritual practice, which um, is uh, I, which I stumbled upon when I was twenty two in nineteen ninety eight. So it's like coming on five. You know how old I was in nineteen? Oh, you said ninety eight. Nineteen ninety eight. I was eleven. Oh, okay. So you're not that. You weren't that <laughs> much of a baby. You're still. You're you're getting along in life. Um, I was getting ready for my bar mitzvah. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Was well, a I, yeah. Years down the road. So yeah, it was a. It was a very impactful time in my life, and um, I I had received. Um, I had received an indication from the inside that I needed to get right with God, I guess is one way of phrasing it. But I knew I was presented with a choice kind of echoing what you had, um, discussed in our last conversation about kind of adulating my own will, um, using certain forms of, I guess, occultism to concentrate, um, my own will upon myself. And I realized, or I was shown very explicitly that my will will only go so far and any attempt that I did, um, to work on my will would only amplify it, not correct it. And Mm -hmm. that only through, uh, the power and grace of almighty God, would I become a better human rather than a more of what I was. So there was like this amplification. Um, and then there was this path of purification, but the path of purification, um, it was very real to me. It was re- revealed to me, or I saw and felt through just through my own experience that almighty God's power is just tremendous and vast. And I found a way of connecting to that power that suited me, which was through my, this spiritual practice called Subud, um, which came from Indonesia and it's got its own history to it, but it's not dogmatic. Like that was Mm -hmm. one of the things about it. It's not dogmatic. Um, there are, there's no, I think it, it's really best to think that there is an almighty God or to believe that there is one almighty God, but anybody 
from any religion is free to participate in this practice that is purely spontaneous. It's contact. There's a vibration or there's a content within that, um, that everybody has access to regardless of their belief. So I, I had a system of beliefs, um, growing up Christian that I had, and then like fiddling around with a bunch of other religions that I had, but in the process over the past 25 years of participating and doing the practice, um, the belief, my relationship to belief has kind of changed. My relationship to dogma has kind of changed. In our last conversation, you said, well, how can, if you said something really clever, uh, and kind of debatey. The wife or the girlfriend thing? Yeah, like if I had a girlfriend, but I don't know her name, then like, mm -hmm. do you really know your girlfriend? Do you really love your girlfriend? It was really, it's re that was a really poignant, um, or yeah, that, that had like nice little twist on it. Um, so my spiritual practice over the years that I've done it, I know that it is an orientation to the one almighty God. I'm, I'm, I know that. Or barring that, I know that this practice is very, um, it goes, it goes deep and it goes broad. And at the heart of it is that thing that you called the uncreated light. Like there's, there's emanations that are superseded. So I don't know, you know, I walk into a Catholic cathedral and I feel like I feel connected to a form of worship that is good for me. I feel like the container really interact with my heart, my emotions and my mind, it starts to, it starts to ground itself. But the Ladihan, uh, the, the practice of Subud supersedes that, but I need a faith in order to become a better person. But that contact is with me, working on me, healing me, making me better, making me less selfish, making me more flexible, making me more patient, allowing me to, um, I, I receive indications in my life, whether I should go along this path, whether I should ask this question, I feel it attuning me to how I, how God would have me be in the world. But it, it is, it goes on in a direct interface, like what you were saying, where you're, um, those deacons would pray and ask for guidance on these certain issues. Like I can, I can contact the Lottie Hunt in my life and get guidance in certain issues. So that's where I'm coming from. When we start to talk about dogma, I have a, a set of experiences that pra through practice, through years of practicing are showing me the right path. Um, or, or I have a contact and relationship with the one almighty God that, that is deepening that precedes any sort of dogma. So do I know that there's a right and wrong ways of thinking about God. And I know that there's certain ways of thinking or believing in God that will lead you further or closer to that state of accessing who you are in the light of how God would have you be as his created uh, creation. Um, but that is, that's kind of something different or, or secondary to having that contact. So it's kind of like the reverse order where good dogma will lead you there. Or, but what I have is uh, something that leads me to the correct dogma by, by practicing patience, acceptance, surrender, and submission to this contact with the Almighty God. And the contact can't be given through words, but it can be uh, shared um, through the practice. So, yeah. Can I ask you some questions? Yeah. So you and I have talked for almost two hours, and I don't really know what you believe per se. Yeah. You, you, you give hints. 
you give hints. You gave me some more information this time. So my first question is what what do, we call it subud, mm -hmm. right? What does subud consist of exactly in terms of this practice that you're talking about? Like what, um, what does it look like when you're doing subud? the practice? Yeah. yeah. Um, so subud is a contraction of three Sanskrit words: susili, susila, buddhi, and dharma. Um, Susila would be, uh, let me get this right. I'm always bad at this part of the conversation. Um, Susila is like the, um, being a good person. Uh, Bodhi is the, is the light of the divine light within everyone and, uh, the divine light of God or that which God has given you that makes you, um, unique. And then Dharma would be correct implementation of being a good person who is right with God in the world, like Dharma being like the process of being a good person and learning how to be a good person by engaging with the world. So, but the practice itself is incredibly simple. So simple that it doesn't even make sense that, um, I go and well, I do it a lot at home because I'm kind of far away from a group, but I go to a group, there's 15 minutes of quiet men and women are separated. That's really important. Um, and we we're having a problem with that because this country, our country doesn't know what a woman and a man is anymore. So th we're, they're trying to erode that, but people just men switch and women sides week to week. Yeah. Well, this week I'm going to be on this side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, hopefully we find uh, a way through that because there's a lot of pressure to dissolve that. Anyway, so men and women do it separately. Men go into one room, women in another, or we switch rooms if there's not enough space. Um, and you get quiet for 15 minutes and then one person will ask everyone to stand and to relax and then to begin. And what you do is you stand. Well, what I do is I stand there and I relax and I just follow what I'm given to follow. Sometimes I sit there and I, I relax. Sometimes I do feel the crud of my week, right? Or just, I, I feel like the grossness of my week. Like, and I just go, that just kind of goes through me and out of me. Um, sometimes I sing, sometimes I dance. Everybody's doing something different. You don't mess with anybody else. You're kind of doing it together, but you're alone in a way. Um, there is a reality to it though. And that's why I started doing it. When I first encountered this, there was a very profound reality to it that broke me wide open and returned me to the knowledge that I had been created in the image of God that I had received as a child going to worship services mm -hmm. and stuff and that I had lost contact with. And this contact was just very direct. Um, so after half an hour um, or thereabouts, um, it kind of ends on its own or somebody will say finish and then there's some quiet time and then you have coffee or whatever and you go home. So that's the content of it. Okay. Can I ask you some questions? Yeah. What does it mean to be a good person? Um, I think that, um, there's two tests of the two basic tests of being a good person. Um, just like very, very, very basic. One is how do you feel about other people? Like, do you love other people? And the other is how do other people feel about you? Do other people love you? Like, like a good person will love other people and be loved by other people. Like that's one, one way of telling if you're on, if you're becoming a better person or a worse person. And by, well, and then I guess the question is like, what do you mean by love? Like loving other people. It's like having a, doesn't mean not being annoyed by them. Doesn't mean like from inside out, doesn't mean that, um, there aren't 
qualities of people that annoy me, but like being able to love people, like really love them as who they are and like really being able to see and connect with that despite like any differences around that, like really like, and then, and then in practice of relationship with the person, like they relax around me, they open up around me, I'm non-offensive, we get along, right? Like that would show me that I, I really connected with this person and the ability to connect with other human beings, I think is essential, an essential measurement of how good you are. And then also when you're around people, more or less, I think people probably relax around you and are like kind of hesitant to maybe uh, foist uh, negative feelings on you. And, and even if they do and you turn to them, there's just a, a way that people like you. You know, like when people like you um, and it's not like like putting you on a pedestal or like any sort of worship in that way, but they just naturally have an affinity for you. I think that that shows you that you're on the right path. That's very basic. Was Jesus a good person? Um, whoa, my God. Um, oh, fuck. Uh, uh, pardon me. <laughs> that was terrible. Um, I like that. Oh, my God was the first response to the name Jesus. So we're, we're getting on the right track dogmatically. Well, um, yeah, dogmatically. So this is where I'm going to be able to not. Um, I don't I don't think I'm prepared to agree with you that Jesus is God. Well, no, I was um, just making I mean, I, I, I wanted to ask the question of whether he was a good person. And we can talk more about the deity of Christ later, but I would like to yeah. stay on that for a minute, if that's okay. I I think that um, I don't. I I only have very faint indications of who Christ is, and and I do say Christ deliberately. Jesus Christ. So I think there's Jesus, the man who was born, and then. Christ being the soul that inhabited that man, um, and that they're they're one and the same, but Christ is the one who changed history and and is still present. Um, if you are oriented to Christ, but Christ is yeah, Christ. I think Christ is above Mike Paygrade. I can't really define that, but I do. I had that exclamation, and then I did a cuss word right there because I was in a really open space talking about. Um, the spiritual practice and then asking about who Christ is, is like, like, oh my God, like, uh, I, I couldn't begin to describe that, but I do know that he's, if human beings are channels for the Holy Spirit, Christ would probably be like among the biggest that a human being or the form of a human being could get, um, to be a channel for, uh, the supreme power of almighty God. Well, I wasn't trying to startle or scandalize you. I was no. just asking because from your <laughs> description of a good person, it didn't sound like Jesus really fit that description of being somebody Are you talking loved about by the... everyone and that people aren't mm -hmm. like upset by your presence. You know, Christ spent a lot of his time being called names and crucified. You know, all the, yeah. all the, all the leadership of his day hated him more than anybody, yeah. more than they'd ever hated anybody before. So I was just trying to understand where Jesus fits into the, um, Sabud paradigm. Yeah. Of what a good well, person well, is. okay. So, uh, what I was talking about, uh, about the indications of what a good person or bad person is not a Subud paradigm. It's my own paradigm oh, um, that's been cultivated through my experience throughout life. Um, Subud again, doesn't have any dogma at all. Mm. Um, it's all, uh, people bring their own dogma to it. Um, and, and are 
given indications of where they're how to relate to their own dogma over time, I believe, through patience, um, acceptance and submission. But that is a good question about um, if insofar as if the measure of a good person is that people like them and people hate, hated Christ, does that make Christ a bad person? Or does that that open up the question of if Christ was so um, brought to bear so much truth and reality that um, people saw their own fault um, in a way that they couldn't escape, um, that that Christ just shone a light on on their own darkness, that they had to project that darkness onto Christ. I think that that would that that's a really rich, interesting question that I hadn't thought of before. Ask another one. Yeah. So when I asked about a good person, you didn't bring up specific actions. And so I'm just curious, is there any moral content to either your conception of a good person or to Sabud as a practice? I know you said it doesn't have any dogmatic content. Okay. Is there any moral content in terms of actions to do or avoid or a concept of sin in either this practice or your own personal worldview? Um, in my own personal worldview and in my relationship to the practice of the Ladian Kejuan of Subud, um, like I said, like there are, over time, I've learned what's good and what's bad in a better way and becoming attuned to that more and more immediately rather than have to go through a process of is this good or is this bad or a process of being blind to my badness i'm a little bit more aware i've become a little bit more aware of my lust as you put it a little bit more aware of my anger before it acts out like i'm just a little bit more conscious of mm -hmm. the different i guess impulses in me um, and that consciousness allows me to make a decision and when i make a good decision the, if I make a bad decision, then I have that dirt on me, like right? And then through the process of the grace of Almighty God, I get freed from that dirt. But there is like bad habits. So it's like it's like an ashtray, right? You know, like mm -hmm. God cleans the ashtray and then he's smoking it again. And then God comes and cleans the ashtray and he's smoking it again, right? So like there's this cleaning, healing action that the Holy Spirit provides us. But because we also have free will, because I'm also fallen person I keep on like keep on I've I've seen myself over years and years and years to say like if I if I'm actually on the path why am I still doing this bad thing why am I still doing this bad thing and I've seen over the course of years I won't get into specifics that like certain burdens of mine or flaws of mine like all of a sudden like when they're ready to be corrected they're corrected and it's really miraculous like it's like oh I'm no longer I'm no longer stuck. I'm no longer going through the same cycle of like losing my temper about certain things. I'm like, mm. or being really, uh, one, one thing would be being really, really anxious about things. Like, like there's just this pattern that I was in that was just like lifted from me one day. Right. Um, so you talked about the moral content of, of in my conception of the spiritual life. And I can add one more thing. It, it, I was, I was working in a preschool when I was 24. I like, like after I went through my whole spiritual uh, crisis and like I was broken down and, and told that I couldn't be like super awesome, like demon Lord or whatever. Um, I was really humbled. I was totally humbled. And I, 
I found myself working with children with like four or five year olds, um, three or four or five year olds and just doing zippers and dealing with snot and dealing with basic human interaction, ask, you know, be pleased and thank you. Don't hit each other. Become aware that other people are people, you know, like just, just doing that. And there was this one moment where we were all in line, we're lining up and there was a bunch of chaos going on. And there's this one kid who was just, he couldn't focus on zipping up his coat. He kept on getting distracted. And I, and I swooped down in, into him and I, and I just spoke to him in a very soft way. Like, and it wasn't me. I just like, I was prompted to do this. My voice came out just right. And I said just the right thing to center himself on his task. And I didn't do it for him and I didn't speed it through, but like I spoke in the right way at the right time. And some, some thought in me said that to be angelic is to have perfect timing. Like, so my moral content is that you can't give, there are certain basic rules, you know, don't lust, um, don't murder, uh, don't be selfish, right? But in actual interactions throughout the day, like there's so many calculations that they have to be intuitive. And if you are attuned through your practice, through your spiritual practice, if your spiritual practice is making you more conscious and then more uh, more moved by the spirit, like more moved by goodness. Was it you that said, or was somebody else, another Christian that said that Christ could just see, Christ could see God working and Christ was always working with God, right? So there's just this flow that God is like prompting us, like goodness is always there. And we can, if you're on the right path, you'll be able to access that and be a, be a conduit for the work of God and the work of God is so complex. It's in the working of the mosquitoes and the bugs and the compost heap, you know, and let alone like the complexity of human life, mm-hmm. the, the flow of God is so complex that I don't think you can make it a rule. So there is a moral content, but I think the ultimate moral content is that you're being guided and your guidance is proof. You're always being proven. God is always kind of testing or you're always being proven. Like, am I on the right path? Like, did I say the right thing? Did I speak in the right way? Um, did, did I, did I lessen the chaos in the world or did I, did I increase the order in the world? Does it sound like I'm giving you, does it sound like I'm evading the questions or am I not am I, necessarily? I don't okay. think you're consciously evading the question. I think I'm just asking you things that you maybe haven't articulated or tried to verbalize answers to before is how it sounds. So maybe you're, like, is Jesus a good person within my own paradigm of what a good person is? That's a deep question. That's a tough question. So I think you're just trying to, you know, think things out. Well, what would um, Jesus do, right? Then, then, uh, then the question. Protestants try to do that. <laughs> like, that's like, okay, like, what? Yeah, it's like, was Jesus a good person? Like, well, okay, like, if you're Christ like, can you prove that? I don't know. Can I ask you two questions? And if I'm, if I'm being too, Harsh with the scalpel. Please let me know and I will back <laughs> off. I promise. Okay. All right. Is sex outside of marriage okay? Hmm. Is that both questions? No. Okay. Um, I think that sex is marriage. I, I don't um I don't think that I think it's not okay to to <sighs> I think it's less than human to participate in, in sexual exchanges that don't have at their core, the connection, the deep, deep 
um, connection uh, that includes the entire human being, including their spirit and um, sex outside of sex, sex that's hidden from God is not proper, correct or good. Well, nothing is hidden from God, so. Well, yeah, but um, marriage, I think, would be um, consecrating the sexual union before God and making that a conscious act of worship of God. And and I think that marriage, true marriage between a man and a woman, um, true sex between a man and a woman can't, by definition, happen outside of marriage because true sex is the union of of a male and a female soul and body. So it's a technicality. Again, I'm fucking evading. I'm freaking evading you. It's your your channel. You can curse all you want. Yeah. So I have two questions now instead of one. Okay. The first one's an easy one. It's a yes or no question. The second one's going to make you squirm a little. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Do different practitioners of Subud end up with different moral compasses? Or have different moral compasses. Like, would would some person say sex outside of marriage is not okay? Another would say it is okay, or have different definitions of what a good or bad person is, or do they all kind of come to the same conclusions about morality? Well, so and this is a question I was going to ask earlier, which is related to a question that was brought up um, about this "no enemies to the right" discourse. Um, I don't know if you're at all connected to, but um, the right wing and the, and the center right wing are yeah are, are fighting over "no enemies to the right," and and it's the question of who polices the boundaries of who you mm-hmm. uh, who you align with politically, and then mm-hmm. part of the question that I asked you about her heresy is that this is a policing of boundaries. Dogma includes the policing of boundaries mm-hmm. and there's correct belief and incorrect belief. The practitioners of Subud, one thing that I can say about them, having known a lot of them that have been participating in the Ladihan Kejiwan of Subud for 50, 60 years, um, they all end up becoming themselves. They all end up becoming very much who they are. Um, we do not police, are we, there's a minimal amount of policing of boundaries of other people's morality. So if some people are, uh, have sex outside of marriage, like that has nothing to do with, um, the practice of the Ladihan. We go in, we relax, we begin, we praise God, and then we finish and we end. But, um, but there are certain things that are not conductive to getting closer to God. And if you're really serious about following, um, if you're really serious about being closer to God, you'll see the evidence of that in your life and in your behavior. Um, and I think that by and large, most people who have sincerely practiced the Ladihan Kejiwan of Subud end up more or less acting out conventional Christian morality. Um, with, I guess, uh, with, uh, I, I don't know, but there's a lot of people who fall outside of that and we don't really police that specifically with sex and marriage is not something we really police. Now drugs, you're not supposed to do drugs or alcohol, um, uh, especially during, uh, Lodihan. like, like there's no point. Why would you go and do that if you're going to be high? Right. So mm-hmm. it's really, and we also, um, there is some discourse around mixing, um, practices, um, specifically 
like going to Ladihan and then doing yoga rather than just following your practice, like mm-hmm. bringing in some other mod- modality rather than it, it just, it contradicts the whole point of worshiping God uh, or allowing God to lead you in worship rather than uh, bringing your own conceptions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which doesn't preclude you going to mass or going to a service outside of Ladihan. It's just like, those are two f- different practices. I didn't, did I answer your question? (laughs) We don't police that boundary. We can't really police that boundary. Hopefully people realize it. It's like, it's like, there's this, there was a story about, uh, uh, Helen Keller, you know, she was deaf and blind Mm -hmm. and she was from a very early age and her teacher brought her down to the water and was trying to teach her this way of, of speaking. And Mm -hmm. I just remember this one thing. The only thing I remember about a story is like the teacher kept on putting her hand in the water and then tapping and putting her hand in the water and tapping. And at one point she just realized that this tap meant water yeah, yeah. and she, she just clicked. And, and so the Ladihan or Subu is just that, like either it clicks or it doesn't. And it's just like a, a chance. It's just the opportunity to, to have a direct experience and then, and then implement that in your life to the best of your ability. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. I guess what I'm trying to figure out and not coming away with a great answer to, and again, I don't mean that by any sort of insult to you or anything. I don't think you're being evasive, like consciously. I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out, like for a Christian, for example, our moral code is what it, what in the world of ethics is called divine command theory, right? Hmm. God has revealed, this is the ethical code. This is the reason for it. It's not that doing the good ethics makes you saved, but it's part of the life, right? Part of the Christian life, obviously. Um, whereas what you're talking about, I'm trying to figure out what is the justification or grounding for morality. And then I'm wondering, since it sounds like different people, you said we don't police morality, different people are doing different things, becoming who they really are, which it sounds like it could have a lot of problems too if someone decides oh, yeah. they really no. are as a pedophile or you know a tranny clown killer serial killer or something okay but, well yeah yeah but because you said that you guys are like all accessing the almighty god and it doesn't seem to make sense to me from an orthodox perspective why the same almighty god would be guiding people towards wildly different moral codes and ways of life rather than holding everyone to the same standard because it would be the same God would I would at least in theory, right? Be saying, well, this, uh, I'm almighty God. I'm the creator of the universe. This is how it works. Like X is how it works and Y is how it doesn't. Yeah. So for people to all say, well, it's kind of like a moral Protestantism for lack of a better phrase. And forgive me for all the Protestants listening where they say, well, I talked to God. He told me it's okay to do this. Right. I, or Mormons would, would say, I got private revelation. It's okay to do this or not yeah. okay to do this. Yeah. And I, I think it's difficult to make an argument that people are following the one and same God and then coming yeah. away from it on wildly different paths, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, um, so I do, I've seen, so part of the, the actual, the process of, of interacting with the Lottie Hunt aligns, it totally aligns with what you talk about and what, um, is the Ladihan, is that like a spirit of some kind? Is it interacting with the Ladihan? It, it just means the exercise. It, oh, okay. It, it's okay. Indonesian for spiritual exercise. Ladihan Kejiwan is just spiritual exercise. But it's not um, the name of a specific spirit or a creature? 
No, um, okay. no, no. It just it just means the practice. Um, I don't think there are people. Um, we Sue was open to anybody. You don't have to believe in Almighty God. I don't think it makes any sense to speak about it without speaking about Almighty God. So I'm mm-hmm. using my terminology because it doesn't make any sense to me mm-hmm. to talk about this without using that frame of reference. And because I'm in the company of a Christian, I think that's acceptable terminology. Um, but as you go through the process of um, the, the, once the contact initiates in you, you go through kind of a fourfold process that's always acting coincident with itself. But the first one is purification. You're, you're being purified. And that purification has to do with how you were formed um, in your mother's womb, like all your ancestral baggage, all your, your growing up, um, like all your childhood uh, trauma or whatever, like all the things that were imprinted on you, um, and also your own choices. And your own choices are deleterious to, you know, as you know, like, like that concept of sin and the concept of, uh, the concept of ancestral sin are present in Christianity with the fall. And then with, you know, the different sorts of sin. So Mm. every time you sin or every time, um, sin is in you, it leaves a mark and you are imperfect. You're not perfected. You're dirty, you're stained, um, and you're out of order. Like, like you're just, you're out of order. Um, and part of the, exposure to the contact of God that, um, comes in, comes through the, the Lodihan of Subud is the correcting and the washing of that. And I have had, like, I do have like, you know, like where the first 10, 15 minutes is just like feeling icky and like, or shoveling snow. It's like this weird kind of process of kind of being like gotten rid of some crap. Um, and when I first started doing it back in 22, like that first few months, and this is fairly personal stuff. I don't really talk about this stuff or, um, on my channel because it's my channel. It's not about me, but I, hopefully I just practice or I, I am a good person rather than like talk. I don't need to talk about my spiritual development, but, um, for the first year, first few years, I was just all this crap was coming out of me. It felt, it felt terrible, but at the end or afterwards, and then as I went on toward, toward, you know, like that, that process was kind of like encapsulated in less and less time. Um, I would feel free and light and open and more aware of things. Like it would, it would come out of me. And then over the course of time, I started like after the, like the dirt starts to get cleared out then i get to start to be put together put back together in certain ways i can't i'm describing a process that's out of my league like god is doing this to me but i can see it echoed in my life that i start to be able to have more self-control over myself um i'm able to access people in certain ways you know i'm I'm able to see things in the right way i have more proportionality i'm it's easier for me to do good i guess is one way of saying it i'm closer Mm -hmm. to being able to do good and i'm uh, it's harder for me to act bad and so that's how it's happening in my own life and i see it working in other people who do subud but i also see that certain people and myself get stuck on certain parts of that process. Like they can't get out of a bad habit or they can't get, they get stuck on a certain level of, of that process. Um, and they can be stuck there for years. Right. So I, I, I think I've seen enough evidence to, to assert that the, the action of the contact of almighty God that is manifest in the Lodihan Ketchino and Subud will eventually get you to a morality that can 
not be disagreed with by a Christian or a Muslim or any, any truly um, religious person, any, any truly devout human being will see you're a good person by pretty much any standard by the process of the Lodihan. Um, I think it goes in that direction, but, but because it, because Subud is about inside out, we don't police that. We don't tell anybody except for egregious um, things. Like, of course, egregious things don't interrupt people. If you're a bad person, you know, you can't be a, if you're, you know, if you're criminal or something like that, um, like we don't associate with you, but it's really hard. It seems to me to be the case that people who are really locked into not becoming a better person, um, have a really hard time, like sincerely wanting to go back and doing Lottie hunt again, because I think in my experience, I am, I have to constantly face and constantly be held accountable to how I failed. Um, and then access grace and then go through the process of like, okay, well here, try again, here, try again. And it's taken years for me to clean up my act in certain ways and other ways, not Mm. so much. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I don't know if you'll edit that out later, but because you, you said like you're kind of <laughs> uncomfortable, but. <laughs> well, it was, I was talking to the audience too. And so they'll probably tune out. And it, 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 it's, um, yeah, it really is the case. Um, this is kind of a meta conversation just as a content creator. And maybe you can agree or have another thought on this, but it really is the case that people hear what they want to hear or they, they're open to things when they're open to things and when they're not open to things, like maybe they have a bad reaction, but usually they just, they don't hear it. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I'm saying anything, um, if I'm saying whatever I'm saying into the other will hit the right ears and most people will just ignore it. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but it's true. I'm not really embarrassed by the fact that I, I was, I was, into some awful stuff. I was just, I was eating shit basically. And that had to come out of me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it felt like shit for it to come out of me. And it took a long time for me to be corrected. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's the content. That's why, that's why I admire religions. Um, there's specific religions that I admire, um, because you can see that it's creating good people. Like it's creating honest about sincere people that whose face kind of has this lightness to it, like that uncreated light. You can kind of see it. You can, you can kind of see it like, like flashing off of them. Like, and, and you see that. So that's why I think like the ultimate, like the proof is in the pudding or whatever Christ said about like the, by their fruits. Yeah. I don't think you mentioned pudding, but by the fruits, you shall know them. <laughs> fruits are kind of a pudding. You... It's a natural pudding. If you mush it enough. Oh, yeah, I don't have any mushy fruit since I was like three. Pectin. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. I've never heard of Sabud before, and um, I have I have thoughts, but I don't know how much to say about the thoughts. Hmm. Well, we have to talk at least for another fifteen minutes. <laughs> we, should, we have to we have to make a nice tight episode. So, how do we? Okay. Can you help me tie this together? I can I can share my thoughts with you with your permission if you're okay with me commenting. On yeah, you and your spiritual state, which is a very kind of awkward thing, especially like in public in front of eighty thousand subscribers. Yeah, uh, is that a, can can I share my perspective with you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So from from what it sounds like and from what I know of you, and I actually found out more about you after our last show because one of the guys at my parish uh, is is a fan of yours and mm-hmm. filled me in on like the evergreen history and everything, which I I didn't know about for for our last show. Um. 
I, I think that you are definitely on a path of growth. I think there's no question of that. And I think God has given you certain innate talents of communication and of standing up for what's right, even when you know you're going against the current and even when the forces of the world are, are not going in that direction, like with all the transgender stuff, I think you're doing really well. And that there's something to that that not everyone has. You know, I really believe that that kind of courage for truth is a gift from God that a lot of people don't have. And from your description of your path and your spiritual growth, I can see, in my opinion, which is really not worth anything, but that God has been working on you in, in different ways. It's not like to kind of clean up some of this bigger, heavier stuff. And I, and I also think that there's going to be a ceiling to this practice of yours. Really, ceiling is the wrong word. It's almost like an internal barrier, not a ceiling, like an upward barrier. I think that there's so much God wants to do with you and so such deep, deep core level healing he wants to do with you and can do with you. And I don't think that the practice you're describing is going to be able to get you to, like you were saying, be who you are, become who they are. Who you really are is created in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And to get there, you have to follow him in the way that he laid out, because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christianity is black and white like that. You know, it's mm -hmm. either you're following him or you're not. And yes, there's some variation in what people will say that means. But at the end of the day, he is the way and the truth and the life. And because he connects with us at the deepest level of who we are, because we're created in his image, there's a part of us that only he can touch but that outside of the paradigm of the church, which is his body and the path laid out by Metropolitan Hierotheos, as I explained earlier, I think there's a part of you that you probably can't even perceive yet. It's so deep in there that you're not going to be able to truly regenerate without true submission to him and the true ascetic life that he and the apostles laid out for us. And I really think that he's put you on this path where, you know, you're being exposed to these ideas recently, like even having goofy people like myself on to talk about things that are way above my pay grade. Mm. You know, I, I see how God is doing for you what he once did for me when I was being healed in different ways outside of the church of the big things, like the, the big things that I had to deal with first before I could even get close to that deeper level of healing. Like, hey stop living in fornication hey stop invoking beelzebub in the mirror in your in your apartment ba bathroom you know big things like that <laughs> Stup the stupid things that we all do Idiot. When, we're, when we're young and stoned and dumb <laughs> yeah. and i see looking back how god was working with me and bringing me to a point where i would be able to approach the true courage that it takes to, to see that deepest sin in our own souls mm -hmm. and how much it took years of effort to get there and i look back and i see that god first was putting Protestants in my path just to introduce me to what the scriptures were. I mean, I didn't know if there was no Orthodox Christians evangelizing in San Diego at the time. There, you know, you have Planned Parenthood out there at the malls. There's no Orthodox Christians out there. So I see there were Protestants brought to my path just to introduce me to what does it mean to love the Bible? What, what should I even read here? What, who are these characters? Who is Paul? Who is James? Stuff that, frankly, the Orthodox should have been doing. But God's mm -hmm. not going to stop bringing people in just because the Orthodox are not evangelizing the way we should. And bringing me there step by step, I what I think I perceive in you is God doing that same thing with you that he's done for me and so many other people, of putting you in the proximity of the hospital so that when you're ready 
to take a step in and check it out. You will at least have been prepared beforehand by some of this healing you're talking about to be able to even perceive what's there. Whereas before, it's not like you're talking about all this baggage, just like it was with me. I, I wouldn't have understood what I was experiencing or looking at anyway. I would have had all, all this resistance from the filth of my past and all this baggage stopping me from seeing what was there. And so it sounds like God has been preparing you in that way. And I, I really, truly, truly hope that someday you you would become open to the possibilities of orthodoxy because mm. you're obviously very concerned about healing and getting better and being better. And I don't think there's any any deeper healing than there is in the church. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, no, thank you very much. I would, um, I'll challenge you. I'll give you a counter challenge um, mm. in, in your prayer, if you would, if you're curious. Mm. In your prayer, ask Almighty God, what is the content and reality or, or the source of the Ladian Kejuan of Subud. Um, and I, I don't think anybody, um, one cannot know what it is until one um, knows what it is. Um, like there's no way I could describe it to you. I do not think that it is out of line with Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm certain it's not out of line or it's not um, contradictory. Uh, to uh, the work of Christ Jesus in the world, but if you if you're curious, I, I'm sure you'll get an indication of 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 what it is. But there's a content, a reality, and when you bring up like the depth of it, yeah, it goes it goes pretty far. I don't know how Christ, how far Christ goes, so maybe Christ is Christ is bigger. I'm, I'm I'm open, but it's it's a big it's a big long road to to the seat of our heavenly father. It's a really long road. And for some reason, or just because reality set up this way, God is constantly interacting with us, even though he's um, way far beyond us. I could tell you what I will be happy to do. And then I'll tell you why, you know, we've talked, we've had to talk about dogma for an hour and a half and didn't really talk about much dogma, but that's okay. Yeah. What I can do is I will ask my spiritual father, who I'm in obedience to as per the path of Orthodox healing, what he mm. thinks of this practice and what the church has said on it, if the church has made a statement on it. I wonder and if I, it is. But I want to explain why, because that's, I think, very important. So we do not emphasize this sort of private revelation, asking for direct answers to questions, yeah. the spiritual experiences, visions of angels and God thing that a lot of other faiths do. And the reason for that is because it's very easy to be deceived. And this is St. Paul warns us, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light and his ministers appear as angels of righteousness. Paul warns us that even if angels preach a different gospel, we have to turn them away. So the Bible is very clear that even, even these creatures that are invisible, that are much older, more powerful than us, they can lie to us and they do lie to us. And to bring back the Mormon example, which has been on my mind recently, because I've been mm, on yeah, Twitter and everything. I saw what you're, yeah. You know, Joseph Smith's visions of, quote, God, from an Orthodox perspective, it's so transparently Lucifer and his fallen angels that are appearing to Joseph and his mm. not having the humility or spiritual discernment to understand what was happening. And when the devil appeared to Joseph Smith and told Joseph Smith that he was actually God, Joseph just believed him. He believed the devil and all the things the devil told him about God, about man, about the creation of the world. I don't 
I don't think per se, and I, I can't make this judgment call, I didn't know him. I don't think Joseph Smith was lying about a spirit appearing to him saying, I am the father, I am the son, whatever. Here's the truth that the Christian church has lost. They've apostatized. We need to restore the true church of Jesus Christ. I think Joseph Smith did have spiritual experiences, profound, powerful ones that came straight from the mouth of Satan. And so for us, that's one of countless examples in the last 2,000 years of history since the appearance of Christ in the world in a physical body, I should say, that demons have tried to trick people, have started other religions. Same thing with Muslims, right? The quote, Angel Gabriel appearing to Muhammad and hmm. leaving him writhing on the ground, frothing at the mouth as if he was having a seizure. These are not experiences from good angels. And so we, I was actually just reading this morning in a book called The Threshold by St. Ignatius Brian Cheninov. It's a new book. I love this guy's writings. He's a Russian hmm. saint from the 19th century. The whole first 57 pages of the book is about the discernment of spirits. And it's funny you brought up the phrase, you shall know them by their fruits, because that's very much uh, the theme of his homily on the topic of how true experiences or visions of angels or of Christ always leave us full of contrition and sorrow at how wicked we are. It never builds us up or makes us think highly of ourselves or builds up vanity or conceit, or the thought that we're very spiritual, or we have something important to teach now that God has chosen us mm -hmm. to share a special revelation with. And it's funny because so many sects, religious sects and heretical groups started in exactly the same way. But this is something our, especially our monks have been dealing with for 2000 years, going back to St. Anthony the Great in the third century, writing about the devil's tricks. This is something they try with holy men. Oh, you're so holy. God has chosen you to share this special revelation or to have this deep insight. And so we're very, very cautious with asking God directly for confirmation of something because it's so oh. easy that the spirit that responds to us will not be God. So typically when we have a, hmm. a when if an Orthodox Christian were to have a spiritual vision or experience, what we are taught to do is, first of all, inherently disbelieve it. Believe it's from Satan. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to what the thing tells you, what the spirit tells you. Assume it's a lie. Assume it's a delusion. Bring it to your spiritual father who has more experience with these things. And then you can compare that experience, which we're not denying you're having a spiritual experience. You definitely are. Yeah. Compare that spiritual experience with the teachings of our glorified saints and what they have said about spiritual experiences in order to better discern whether we are being deluded and should just neglect it. We even teach that even if it is a real vision from Christ or an angel, it's still healthier for us to initially reject it out of humility, knowing we're not worthy of a vision like that, and that Christ will not hold it against us if we rejected him in that way, because we assumed the worst of ourselves and therefore that it wasn't a real experience, uh, because overwhelmingly the odds are that it's a delusion. Satan Satan doesn't have trouble appearing to someone as a as, as, quote, Christ, and saying, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, blah, blah, blah. But that vision will always lead someone astray if it's not from the true Christ. So we always make the sign of the cross. We're taught if we have a spiritual experience, and that if there's some spirit creature speaking to us, it will disappear at the sign of the cross. In mm -hmm. fact, today is the feast day of Saints Cyprian and Justina, who have a phenomenally interesting story. Do you know the story of St. Cyprian? No. Can I tell you? Yeah, please. St. Cyprian was a pagan sorcerer in Antioch, and he was so well-learned in the arts of sorcery that he was initiated into a pagan priesthood on Mount Olympus, and he was known for um, sacrificing people for more pagan power, 
according to the Orthodox Church of America's website about him that I was just reading before this show. People would come to him and say, hey, I need you to do something for me. I need you to get me more money or a lover or whatever. I need you to cast your spells, invoke your demons, do what it is you do. And he was the most prominent sorcerer in Antioch. Everyone knew this was him. He could command legions of demons. He was that close to Satan. Satan himself appeared to Cyprian and gave him a legion of demons to do his will with. And there was a young man that was really in love with this Christian virgin named Justina and really wanted her to be lustful for him so he could fornicate with her. So he goes to St. Cyprian and says, okay, this is what I want. I want this girl to sleep with me. And so St. Cyprian tries all of his tricks, casting spells, sending a, a, a legion of demons to her. Um, and whenever he sends a demon to inspire lust in her, she makes the sign of the cross and the demon has no power. And St. Cyprian has never, now saints, he wasn't a saint at the time. Cyprian at the time had never experienced anything like this because for all he knew, Satan was this all-powerful being that could get, get him whatever he wanted, get his clients whatever they wanted. And so the more he tried this, the more he realized that Satan, this great powerful wizard behind the curtain, right, this great wizard of Oz, was terrified of this little sign of the cross and had absolutely no power if he would make it. And so when he finally realized, wait a second, if the name of Christ and the sign of his crucifixion is all it takes for this great being to have no power, then obviously I'm not following the most powerful spirit. I'm not following the most powerful being that's out there. Hmm. And as a result of this, he ends up converting to Christianity, becoming baptized, becoming a, a reader and then a deacon and a priest and a bishop shortly thereafter. And he ended up um, converting so many pagans to Christianity that it was said that Satan had no more hold in Antioch by the time he was done because he had such deep insight into the workings of Satan and into the power of Christ to repel Satan that he just cleansed this whole ancient city of of the power of Satan. And it, what, a, what a great day to be talking about spiritual experiences on his feast day today. And you'll often see them in icons together, St. Cyprian and Justina. Oh, really? Yeah. Can't imagine the process of purification that guy had to go through. It, it must have been quite profound, because quite <laughs> he was way worse than I was. And it's taken me mm. like, what, how many years now? A lot of years. A lot of, of years. Trying yeah. to be purified, and there's still a lot of selfishness and filth in my heart. So I have the, a long way to go. The chain of authority for discernment that you describe is, I um, I admire it, but it's so even that is so fragile to to perpetuate that over ages like it has to be a tremendous um active well a tremendous act of of discipline and devotion in a collective act of uh discipline and devotion for your your church to to stay on the right path and then also a a sign of tremendous amount of grace that god can god would would over centuries um mm -hmm facilitate that chain of command that chain of authority mm -hmm. and i understand that it's necessary to uh, spiritual experiences abound and i don't think i don't put much stock into them um uh, you know when i was younger i thought i wanted that and then after a certain point i'm like i don't want that i want i want to be able to be um i want proof in the world mm -hmm. um of of things i don't want visions and something that's just selfish indication every once in a while i need like do I do this? Do I do that? Um, and, and I'm fine with just like a kind of some minor sign, like just like a baby walking out into, uh, walking down a hallway and they're like, okay, I need to work with children. That w that was just an indication that I received. Um, hmm. but at, at the same time, don't you have to, 
you can't bring everything to your, I guess there's a certain threshold of what you bring to your spiritual father and like what you Mm -hmm. take kind of take care of your own. And then you probably act as a spiritual father and we won't get into your personal life, but you probably act for as a spiritual father kind of for those who are under you. Right. And, and that kind of stacks up. If people ask, I try to guide them in the right direction. I am in, um, graduate school for pastoral care and counseling. So hmm. um, when I is that wrap up? Can I ask? I don't want to go oh, in like there. three years. I oh, sheesh. Started less than a month ago. So I'm how are you the, liking it? Uh, I like the content of the books I'm reading and the things I'm learning. The organization of the school could, let me rephrase. It's run more like a ministry than a business, which is not necessarily conducive to a well-oiled machine in terms of a graduate school, Mm. even if the intention is good. I think it would benefit from having someone come on board that was very experienced with running schools. And it is an accredited theological school. Um, But I'm having mixed opinions on certain aspects of it. But I do like it. I'm going to stick with it. And I need 400 hours of counseling experience. So I'm going to be speaking with a lot of people. Yeah. But maybe just add this, add this, put it on, put it on the resume. This could, this could be a contact. Yeah, just like hour. an ad. There we go. Like contact. There, go. Hour. there we go. There you go. But no, to answer your question, <laughs> no, you don't want to reach the point where you're like non-functional without your spiritual father. Like I can't decide to have peanut butter and jelly or mac and cheese for lunch. Father, please. I need a blessing. Tell me what to do. That's, too far for monks it's different monks really are more like that but that's much more severe than for people living in the world and they signed up for that um there are unfortunate cases where parish priests will think that they're the abbot of a monastery and treat their parishioners like that which is a very unhealthy dynamic Mm. possibly possibly the subject of my thesis i'm still trying to figure that out like parish cults and pastoral abuse wow yeah i feel that there's some meat to that um, yeah. I'm also interested in drug addiction, so we'll see where I got two years to decide on my thesis, but I'm putting ideas together in terms of the proposal and everything. Um, I think that could be a really interesting topic. Yeah, God's um, personality. But we we believe what Christ said that the gates of hell would never prevail against His church. We believe what the apostles outlined in the Bible about apostolic authority, ordaining bishops and priests after them, and this unbroken chain from the first century down to the present day. All of our priests can tell you what apostolic lineage they come from, the laying on of hands, as outlined in the New Testament. You know, orthodoxy is not this, like this American Christianity where everyone, Pastor Jim, just picks up his Bible, decides he wants to lead a church. We don't have that. You know, we don't have Pastor Jim's Bible church. Uh, we have apostolic succession, which is entirely different. And we believe that the church is truly the body of Christ who is also its head, that the church is the extension of the incarnation from Christ's birth until the end of time. So we Mm -hmm. believe that he is present in the church just as much as he was when he was physically walking around with the apostles. So for us, it's not even a question of, oh, I hope grace can be maintained over the centuries for this method of discernment. It's that this is the living, breathing witness of the saints down for 2,000 years. You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This is the path mm. that has produced saints for 2,000 years. We, we have Christ's presence in it, in the sacraments, in the church all the time. And so the teaching doesn't change because why would it? Why would Christ change his teaching? You know, so for my for my third little shiv at them, we're not Mormons that can change our, quote, revelations every 15 minutes in, in regards to massive things like 
polygamy or whether black people can be priests or why they're born with cursed black skin because the new prophet's revelation overturned the old one. I just did a paper on this. That's also part of why it's, it's just in your head. <laughs> it is. You know, we believe the revelation, the deposit of faith, like the Bible says, was given once and for all to the saints. And so we are still living in that revelation. And the dogmas will never change. Even if errant priests and bishops become heretics and break off from the church, which will always happen, the church will never change. And that is the beauty of it. Much to the chagrin of progressives who want to worm their way in and slowly degrade things over time. You know, you can't do that to Christ himself. And this is his body. It's hmm. not going to work and it will never work. Okay. I, without giving the progressives ammunition or a foothold. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just a question, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think because you say, "Well, what is a good person?" And you use you use the word Jesus Christ and you use the word saint, but how would you be able to tell with if well, you I couldn't speak the language? Jesus was a good person, yeah. Okay, but yeah. like, what what is a good person? And so, what is a saint? Like, if if absent the ability to communicate to a mm -hmm. person in a language, like just mm -hmm. if there was just no language available to to check out this guy's thoughts or this guy's beliefs, or this guy's dogmas. How would you know a good person? Like what would be the emanation call, of Christ? And we believe person? that there, we don't believe in good people. That's not a phrase that oh. Orthodox use. I am a good. So person, that was a total a trick person. question then. Okay. No, it wasn't a trick question. I was trying to understand the role of Jesus being good within your paradigm of what counts as good. Okay. It wasn't a trick question. I but, never, but Jesus is a good person. Good with a capital G. He is the good person. Okay. Yeah. Everyone else is not because he is good by nature. I mean, our human nature was created good, but then after the fall, none of us is naturally good in a post-fall expression of our fallen nature. Our goodness is only Christ working his goodness through us and our cooperation with his goodness and his gifts and the Holy Spirit and grace and the energies of God. So our quote, whatever goodness we have derives from his goodness. We don't believe in like that guy's a good person because he behaves well. Because once again, the Pharisees behaved well, but internally they were very evil people. So if a good person is someone with no bad behavior, well, that doesn't, you know, vibe with what the Bible says, because people can have good behavior and still be corrupt. It could be someone, would it be, because so let's just say, for example, let's say someone is a pedophile, right? And they have uh, molested a bunch of kids and they decide they don't want to do it anymore, right? For whatever reason, maybe they're scared of going to prison. Let's say that's their motivation. They're afraid of going to prison. They stop themselves from molesting kids, but they still want to. They think about it all day. They fantasize it about it all day. Is that a good person because he's not doing it? Right. There's yeah. not, not much you can say there. Yeah. So we, we don't we don't we can't see into the hearts of other human beings enough to say who's good or who's not. But we understand our hearts are all corrupted by the fall and that we need God's grace to do good things. Right. Christ says, without me, you can do nothing. So our, we, we just never use the phrase good person. Okay. In fact, if a, if a Orthodox Christian ever tells you that he's a good person or she's a good person, you should avoid that person because that person is full of pride and lacks the ability to see, has not received the gift from God to see their own filth. Nobody to whom God has shown their own sin would ever describe himself as a good person because it would be a lie. In fact, one of the, one of the earliest things I remember learning about in Orthodoxy 
a priest out in California said, never trust a monk who calls himself humble. And that always stuck with me because a humble person thinks they're prideful, right? Hmm. No, nobody humble calls themselves humble. Okay. Well, that's self-perception, but can't you tell a good person from a bad person? I mean, aren't you able, aren't you given with the gift of personal discernment? Like if Jesus, if Christ said, I'm sorry, this is kind of, we're edging into some sort of theological debate now. I mean, take it there. But if Christ said by their fruits, you shall know them. He's, mm-hmm. he's uh, implying that a human being has the, has a personal gift of discernment on what is good and what is evil. What is, what is a good person? What is a bad person? What is, what is a, a faith that is leading toward a good per- or m- adulating the good in a person as opposed to adulating the bad in a person? Person. Well, we can bring this back to the conversation about the spiritual vision and discernment of spirits, where the fruits of a spiritual experience are shown, whether the person becomes mentally ill, confused, deluded, full of pride, starting their own religion where they have to sleep with everyone else's wife in order to rule their own planet in the afterlife. Ha, shiv number four. Um, <laughs> or, for example, the heretics in the church. And I love, I love Mormons. They're some of the nicest people I've ever met. I'm just... You caught me at a time when this has been like a focus. You're just of my social trying media to latter day those saints, man. Yeah. So like they, oh, they're a perfect example. They all think of themselves as wonderful people. This is very important to them. This idea of being a good person. Okay. Um, it, it, this external behavior modification very important. But then when you look at it, the rate of antidepressant use in Utah is almost twice as much as the national average. A lot of the men are addicted to pornography, from what my friends tell me. I have a friend who used to be a fundamental. Like his his dad had three wives, so I've talked to this guy a lot. Um, fundamentalist Mormon. A lot of the women are really into plastic surgery. So they all think of themselves as good people because they're behaving well, but there's something internally that's not being healed that's leading to these kinds of uh, band-aids and ways of dealing with it, right? Because this is what he told me, and I actually quoted his interview, my interview with him in my paper recently. If you think of yourself as good, but you can't stop from sinning because you haven't actually been healed internally, there's this great deal of shame that comes with that. Why can't I be as good as the next Mormon, right? Why can't I? Why am I not as good as my neighbor? Of course, they don't know if the neighbor is just as dysfunctional as they are. What's wrong with me that I can't stop sinning, right? Because they're relying on their own power, their own will to stop sinning, which will never work. If you rely on your own power in spiritual warfare, you will not be able to resist even the smallest attack of Satan. To quote a book called um, Victory in the Unseen Warfare, phenomenal, amazing, amazing book about spiritual warfare. So to begin, I've had this debate with people where, well, why do you say you're a good person? Oh, I don't rape. I don't kill. I don't steal. It's always a list of negations of bad actions, right? Or I'm nice to people. I give to charity. But again, the Pharisees were doing all of that, too, and they no one considered them good people except themselves and each other. So for Christ, a good person, I guess, would be someone completely internally healed and united to him, I suppose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which would be a glorified saint. I guess we could say that was a good person, but that person would have been the first to tell you how evil they were because they saw the evil from their own fallen nature and understood that it was Christ's goodness acting through them. It's the, the it's Christ's, Christ's fruits acting through the saints. You know, it's not like they're just great people doing this of their own power. So, but I just, if, if you're saying that Orthodox Christianity is, is the hospital, mm-hmm. I'm like, well, okay, well, where are the healed people? Like, the where, where? They are the healed people. Okay, so what are, what are saints like then? Like, how do we know that, the, like, how do they act as examples for this healing? 
extremely humble. Okay. I've only met one person in face to face that I think is likely to be canonized as a saint very, very soon. Um, there's a priest who I think might be a living saint, but I'm not going to name him because if it gets back to him, he'll be very upset, a sign of his humility. Um, <laughs> I, I, got a, I got a blessing from a man named Elder Ephraim in a monastery in Arizona mm. who showed all the signs of being a saint. And typically, God will show to the rest of us that someone is a saint in various ways. It's not We don't have a checklist the way that Roman Catholics do, from what I understand. And I don't spend a lot of time looking into what Catholics believe. But for example, one one sure sign of sainthood that God gives to the church, so we know to look at someone as an example of someone who did it correctly, is that decades after they're buried, their body will be disinterred, and oftentimes they will not have decayed. They will be incorrupt. So an incorrupt body is a sign that God's grace has so, it, this person is so infused with grace that God has overcome the physical order of nature, you could say, by by showing us, look, what I've done through this person, he's been dead 30 years and his body is not decayed. Has this happened recently? This happens all the time. Really? There, there are rel- We call them relics, the body parts of saints, which are venerated yeah. and um, touched by people when they go visit. Um, we have relics from 2,000 years ago that are still not fully down to the bone. So like the hand of an apostle or the foot or the skull of an apostle. Um, to varying degrees, it's not just not just bone. Sometimes it's just bone. Sometimes there's still some level of skin and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one way God shows us this person was a, a role model to the rest of you. He or she walked this path correctly. Um, so that would be considered by that fruit, we would know them. Okay, this is a good fruit. We, we know they were a saint. Um, it will often be local cults, for lack of a better word, cult in a positive way, uh, will spring up venerating certain people after they've died. Um, stories will abound about miracles they've done or people they've helped, and it will spread until that person will be canonized as a saint, first locally, typically, and then later by a whole archdiocese or by the, all the archdioceses. And we don't believe that only the people with that are canonized are saints. We believe there are countless unknown saints. That We have a saints called All Saints Day, uh, where we where we Praise all of the unknown saints that are known only to God and the angels and the heavenly host. Hmm. Um, so those people, we I think we could say are good people. I think maybe, I don't know if I'm speaking above my pay grade, I would be comfortable saying the saints were good people. But again, it's really Christ that we're complimenting and their cooperation with him. The knowledge of their fallenness and cooperation with his healing that made them saints. But the what you said that was a living attribute of a saint, it was a deep humility. Would be one attribute of a living saint, yes. Is there any other attributes, you think? Working miracles would be good. Um, Clairvoyance. Um, There are many cases. um, Hmm. So the gift of tongues is very rare, but it does happen. Where, for example, someone will go visit Mount Athos in Greece, which is a peninsula with thousands of monks on it. Uh, It's its own kind of sovereign territory. Uh, Women are not allowed to go. They don't even have female animals on on Mount Athos. Someone will go there and speak to uh, an elder in his own language, and the elder will respond in Greek, but the person will hear it in Russian or Romanian or something. Hmm. That would be a sign of a saint, the ability to communicate with someone in a language you don't speak, but they understand you anyway. And again, this is rare. This is not a very common thing. We don't believe the gift of tongues is this Pentecostal silliness where they just babble gibberish and writhe on the floor for a while. 
that's not the gift of Thomas. That's mm. peer pressure and um, it's performative. That's that's not real. That'll be another sign of a saint. Um, but it's typically through other people's perception that someone was holy because they've seen these kinds of things in action. Um, or, or let's say you're wandering through a desert with your displaced group of people and you're with a priest who prays for God's direction. Where's, where is their water? Where is there somewhere we can go find water and God will guide the person to it? Something like that. It's never from the person themselves saying, I'm a saint, I'm a great guy. In fact, if someone calls themselves a saint, you can be absolutely positive that person is not a saint. Well, is it, is it um, incorrect then to pursue sainthood? And no, even, you should pursue uh, sainthood. Yeah. Okay. We so we should all be pursuing sainthood. Okay. But yeah. So you just, yeah. It's really tricky wicket. The closer can, you get, the farther from it you will believe yourself to be. Yeah. Okay. Think about okay. it this way. The closer you get to a light, the longer your shadow gets, right? Yeah. 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 It's kind of like that. Okay. And but isn't that like a psychological torture to just become more and more aware of your fallenness? No. I, no how, how does God one do it is, properly? It would lead to despair and depression if God's grace was not there with you, if he was not upholding you and showing it to you specifically yeah. so you could bring it to him to be healed. Okay. It's not like God's just saying, oh, by the way, you're just this garbage person with bad thoughts and you're selfish and you're kind of a jerk. And remember that one thing you did? Yeah, you just suck, man. That's that's not what God is doing with us. Yeah. Yeah. It's when we, in repentance and contrition and humility, say to him, God, I want to be healed. Show me what needs to be healed, specifically through the use of the Jesus prayer is how the monastics do this. And this is a whole other conversation. When you pray the Jesus prayer alone with your prayer rope, which I've been playing with the whole time, except for when I kicked it under the table by accident. Um, it's just simple. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you seek to focus on that to the exclusion of everything else, banishing all mental imagery, all bodily sensations, excuse me, all mental thoughts. There's actually a little bit of overlap with the practice from what you were describing earlier uh, with Sabud. There's a little bit of similarity in terms of when we do this, we enter this sort of silence and stillness, and through this, God will show us filth yeah. in ourselves. And when you're doing it correctly, you will end up crying profusely these tears of repentance and contrition. But in those sorrowful sorrowful tears at your own filth, you're also being healed. These tears are like a baptism. And you are, you are simultaneously healed by the vision of your illness. And it's your repentance and desire to be healed that heals you. So it does not lead to despair. It actually leads to profound peace, profound stillness, and a, a deep joy that goes way beyond a dopamine rush or a bodily pleasure of some kind. It is, you know, there's so many, and that's why we're talking about the Psalms earlier. The Psalms are largely about the Jesus prayer and stillness and has a chasm, the practice that these elders and monks are doing that lead to, to hmm. these experiences. Um, like, what is it, which is the Psalm? Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He He leads me besides the still waters. So all of these has a chasm. These monks that practice the Jesus prayer understand that we have to still the waters of our soul, right? Christ putting his hand out on the stormy seas, calming the stormy seas when we're all on the boat. We understand these are all analogies for our internal state, for the stormy seas of our own mind and soul and heart, and how Christ can help us still them by hanging out, by pushing, putting out his mighty hand. And then he leads us once we are in that state of stillness. 
So we seek to cultivate that stillness and that silence and that prayerfulness, that watchfulness, whereby we are paying attention to what's going through our mind and heart and rejecting it, staying focused on the Jesus prayer. The deeper we get into that, the more tears come, the more we are healed. And there's there's nothing depressing about it at all. It, it leaves us with a sense of profound gratitude that God has given us this incredible gift, shine this light of grace into our hearts so that we could see what needs to be healed so that we don't don't have to be sick anymore. That's the whole point. We don't want to be sick. God, I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be selfish and unkind and ungrateful and judgmental, but I can't I can't overcome these things on my own. God, please heal me. Enter into my heart, shine your light into my dark places, enlighten my darkness and heal me, please. There's no depression in that. There's no despondency in that because he responds to those prayers and he turns us more into the image and likeness of him that we seek to restore by these practices. Hmm. You, so you're going to be a pastor or are you going to participate in pastoring? I mean, you're, it sounds like you're going to this graduate program because you're being called to, to serve in, in the capacity of a spiritual counselor. Is that correct? I'm not, I'm not sure what, how it's going to manifest itself. Uh, I do want to serve people. I want to help. I don't think I have any interest in being a priest. I don't think it's for me. Um, I see what my priest has to deal with, and I don't have the selfless <laughs> love and patience that he does. Um, yeah. You know, I can't see myself arguing with a parish council back and forth on what color the carpet should be in a certain room in the church. I don't. I don't have that in me. You know. Um, I have a, an undergraduate degree in psychology already, and I've worked in therapy. I've worked in wilderness therapy. I've worked in a psych, psych ward, a locked-in residential psych ward for very violent people. So I'm getting this to kind of baptize my secular education and learn more tools and ways of helping people. And I'll work with my priest as the program goes on and trust in God's guidance and my spiritual father's discernment to kind of guide me in the direction that I would be most useful and helpful to people in. But no, I, d I don't think I'm going to be Father Augustine anytime. Okay, yeah. I think that's out of the question. But you uh, you want to help people with mental health issues or just yeah. be a... or addictions know. and different... Addictions, okay. Or, or whatever, you know. My, the school, we go through all this stuff. Marriage, prepar marriage preparation, um, dealing with death and grieving, loss... Yeah. Uh, mental disorders, addiction. So we're going to go through all of that, and then we'll see what I have an aptitude for and where God ends up calling me, I suppose. Will it be in the church, you think? Or, yes. Or... Oh, okay. So the um, church doesn't just have a bunch of priests. It has all these other functionaries and counselors. and. No, it does have priests. And, and there are Orthodox I mean, not just, not, not just, well. yeah, but not just this monastic order. It, there's no, a whole no. functioning human services kind of act not as much as that. i wish there were but there are okay. counselors who are orthodox who are not clergy um so at least for the next few years i will be dipping my toe in the in the water of that i actually i just did my first real counseling session earlier this week um the guy said it went pretty well so thank god hmm. uh he gave me a referral to someone else so i'm just going to keep learning and you know there's all kinds of we, what we were told in school as we're getting these 400 hours was as you start counseling people, don't even worry about helping them. Focus mostly, I mean, you want to help, of course, but focus mostly on 
the process for you and what it's like for you, what comes up for you as you're listening to people talk about their issues. And so like one thing I've learned, I got to talk to my spiritual father about is when I'm counseling someone and they've finished what they're saying and I don't have anything intelligent or insightful to say, and there's just kind of this awkward silence. Like I don't have a good question to ask. I don't have anything smart to say. What do you do in those moments? So stuff like that, paying attention to things like that so that we can learn how to be better counselors, how better to serve people. And the most important part of being a healer is being healed yourself. So, of course, the most important thing is continuing to go to church every week, um, continuing to go to confession, take communion, examine myself every night and repent for what I've done wrong, pray for God's healing, you know, stick to my prayer rule, stick to the fasting calendar and just do everything I can to be healed myself because I can't heal someone else beyond my own level, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's really the focus of at least the first couple of years of this program. I think those, um, those moments of silence um, that you were describing when they're done saying um, are kind of part and parcel of allowing healing to happen. That's beyond you. Right. Mm -hmm. Just as long as I I felt um, over the course of my life of, there's ways of paying attention to people like first when I was a preschool teacher or like even a toddler teacher and working with babies and a baby's just screaming on your lap because it's nap time. Like there's a way of just like paying attention to them mm-hmm. that they just relax, you know? And then there's a way like with the, in my interviews, like there's a way of paying attention where they work out whatever needs to be worked out or they lead the conversation in a way. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's a really profound skill. Um, and I think it's, it, I think that's the, I would say that's probably the most important part of being a counselor is just to, to be a witness to someone's own healing and, and maybe in a spiritual aspect, like you can't, it's not your role to heal anybody. It's God's role to heal people. And so you, you just, um, being a witness, um, and maybe every once in a while a conduit of that work through a question that, that you find or something like that. I don't mean to speak in the second person because I have nothing to teach you, but it's just interesting to think about because I, my work I'm is sure basically that. It's just. Can I make a recommendation? Yeah. I think you should have my friend Thaddeus on for an interview. Thaddeus Russell? Thaddeus Patrick. Thaddeus His uh, Twitter is J-A-C Falcon, at Jack Falcon. He is an Orthodox Christian. He is a counselor for other Christians. And he has been through transgender or gender dysphoria, I should say, himself and been healed of it and helps other people with it, too. So Mm. I think a lot of your interests would coincide with his. I've had him on my channel, actually, if you're curious to see his kind of demeanor and conduct. Um, He was on my channel, I think, two videos ago. He was talking about transgenderism. And he's got a very good way of articulating all of this kind of healing stuff we're talking about. Um, and from what I'm told, his clients really appreciate the work he does and he's able to help people. And I think you guys would really get along. He's, he's a nice guy. I'd love to have him on. I'll, I'll definitely hit you up for uh, his contact details. But speaking of your channel, I know you're in grad school now. What Are, are people going to be able to keep up with your uh, development as a counselor? Are you, what, how much content do you have in the pipeline now? Books? So I, I think I'm retired from YouTube for yeah. at least the next three years. You know, I had okay. this show yeah. with you and then my friend Craig Trulia, who runs an apologetics channel called Orthodox Christian Apologetics. Uh, or is it Orthodox Christian Theology? I think his channel is called Orthodox Christian Theology. Uh, I've done a video with him. I told, we've been going back and forth on the topic for like months. 
I told him I'd have him on my channel again. Um, after that, I think I'm going to be done with YouTube unless, unless something happens like with where you reached out to me and wanted me to come on. Mm -hmm. Like if someone's like, Hey, I found your stuff, come talk about your book or masonry or excuse me, whatever. If I feel that I can be helpful, I'll probably do it. Um, but it's, in terms of uploading videos to my own channel, once me and Craig have our video, I'm probably, probably going to be done for a while. Yeah. 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 Priorities, man. Well, I have a friend, Luke Kendrat, who used to be one of the ortho bros, as as we were called back before that was a pejorative term. The golden age of the ortho bros when we all got along and did content together and it wasn't just drama and madness. And then Luke went off to seminary and part of his uh, requirement was you got to stop making YouTube videos. So he, pri he privated his entire channel, which was a good channel. I was on it. He was on my show too, called Orthodoxy First. And he's only done a couple of videos. He did one recently that I've just listened to actually as a seminarian. So he's totally changed his interaction with social media. I'm probably going to do something like that as a counselor where if there's a specific reason to talk, I'll talk or if someone asks me something, but I'm not going to be like putting my name out there, making content, you know, stuff like that. I think he and now I, to some degree, have kind of are, are on a slightly different path from being one of the orthodox creators. And yeah. something I've been encouraging everyone else to do since the beginning was to have a full-time job if you're going to be a content creator. Some people have not heeded that warning and I think are going to get in trouble. You know, I don't think you want your faith to be your income. I think it's a real mm. bad idea. If mm. apologetics and internet attention is how you pay your bills, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you need to start drama to get those clicks that get your Oof. food on the table. Yeah. I think it's a horrifically dangerous and stupid thing to do. Some people listen, some people don't. But in either case, my life's getting so busy that even if I wanted to be one of the ortho bros, which I don't anymore, um, I, I wouldn't have the time. Has anybody ventured into unapologetics where you just talk over each other for an hour and a half? Yes, that is what some people do, unfortunately. <laughs> Blood sports, Greek yeah. Orthodox edition. I so, so deeply wish that was not an aspect of the Orthodox <laughs> presence online, but unfortunately it is. Yeah, well, it's human nature, right? I had, I had one debate. I've never done a debate since then because of this, where I kind of lost my temper at the guy a little bit. Um and I felt myself just getting so aggravated. And it was because of, he was not being entirely forthcoming in his interaction with me. And once I sense that someone's not being honest, I kind of lose my charitable disposition towards them. But I got I got so aggravated in that. Um, even though a priest reached out to me and told me he thought I did a great job in the debate, I was like, I really mm -hmm. didn't. I never get mad. And I got mad. So I felt like I touched the hot stove and I don't want to touch it again, you know, of debating. Mm -hmm. I, I think I did a grand total of three debates on YouTube. The first two were fun. One with this um, Gnostic named Marty Leeds. That was a fun debate. And then one with Kurt Doolittle, who was very popular in right-wing political circles for a while. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I like to think my debate with him ended his presence on the internet, um, or at least his um, perception of being like of legitimacy. Hmm. Um, his, his credibility, I think, ended with that debate. Thank God. Uh, and then the last one was with a reformed pastor. I think he's a pastor, some reformed Baptist guy. That was the one that I lost my temper mm -hmm. with Marty and Kurt. I was just kind of, I was not bothered by them at all. You know, I was having fun with them and their anger and their insanity, for lack of a better word. But with the, with the Protestant guy, I actually got upset. And so after that, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be upset. Mm, by put in that people. position. Yeah. 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 
And then poor Roosh, he was moderating the debate. He just sat there, like, not knowing what to do. Because <laughs> it was just, the debate didn't go well, I thought. And he, he said at one point, he's like, I think I'm done moderating debates. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. It was a wake-up call for all of you. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So that was my last last venture with debating. I mean, I'll still debate people on Twitter, even though I'm trying to get better about that. But in terms of video content, I'm, I think I've moved on. And no books in the pipeline for the next three years, for sure. I just got a blessing to write another book because despite myself, I can't help it. I'm a writer. You know, I can't help it. I I don't get to go a day without thinking of some project. Mm. I just don't. Um, It's not even, it's almost like a compulsion. It's not even like a desire. It's something that's just put on me and the words and the ideas come to me and I have to put them on paper. But that book will be years in the future as well. Okay, And I might not publish it because if I ever pursue a second master's degree in theology, I might make that my thesis, which I wouldn't be able to do if I published it first. Because they call this self-plagiarizing. If you publish something you've already published, as I've learned. I didn't learn the hard way. I just learned by, you know, reading about this stuff. So we'll see. But I will tell you, if I do write another book, I'm going to make it so exhaustive and thorough on the topic that it will end a century-long debate permanently. (laughs) <laughs> is my intention okay which debate more you don't want to say which date i don't want to i don't want to share more details quite yet that's fair that's but fair that's we'll fair. see it's all it's all up to god man plans and god laughs hmm. well michael thank you very much for um the um, the way that this conversation unfolded i think our first conversation didn't go how either of us planned so i and i'm just i'm used to that things just don't go as planned um i had a great time but i I have fun with both of these you um thanks for holding me and just listening to me talk about um what we talked about that was that was nice Uh, you're very graceful and just holding me so you i appreciate that and also it's a good signal that you might be a really great counselor because you're capable of doing that um, Here, here's what I will say in response to that. God has given me so much more grace than I deserve that I feel I owe him a great debt of passing that grace on to other people. And mm-hmm. I'm really trying to love God the way he loves me, specifically by loving other people the way that he loves me. And uh, people, my, my own faults and shortcomings and selfishness and mistakes and seeing how patient God is with that. I just, I'm trying to be that to other people to the best of my very fallen ability. So if, if everyone listening would keep me in your prayers, I would really appreciate that um, because it's, this is something I want to do and something I'd like to get better at. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. We, we had two hours about dogma and didn't discuss a single actual dogma. Uh, didn't you, didn't you mention a dogma? I well, that Jesus is God. That is a dogma. <laughs> Okay, there we go. It was, it was one half joke comment in the middle of the show. <laughs> but, but again, for the people still with us, these Orthodox books, dogma, theology, and the illness and cure of the soul in the Orthodox tradition. If anyone has been interested by what we've been talking about, I highly recommend these two. Orthodox dogmatic theology is much more academic than illness and cure of the soul, which is mm. uh, re- recorded lectures and question and answer sessions. Um, between Metropolitan Hierotheos and people that he was speaking with. I will, um, I'll link them in the description Okay. for those who are interested. And now we're going to, um, 
piece out with a little bit of doom metal is that what you call it yes with, with okay. my my song bones of the living dead and thank you for shilling my music <laughs> thank you michael of course there we go